All right, church, if you could turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we'll be beginning in uh, verse 8 this morning. So 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 8. Here's the word of the Lord. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Can you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that we are your temple. That because of the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, the one who supplies all, ordains all, began all, and will complete all, that we are being built up, as your word says, as living stones. Lord, let your word be the framework that we use as we are planted. Let our love for one another be the mortar that seals the temple fast. And let our structure be such that it is inviting for each other as well as the world. We thank you that through your spirit and through your means of grace, we do these things. It's as your word says, the glory and dominion that belong to you that we look and long for. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. So when you think of the Civil War, which I know you often do, one of the things that we think of is the vast number of casualties that occurred. It was a much more violent time. It was a much more violent war. It was one of the last wars that was fought in the Western world where people got close to each other. Within 50 years, people were using advanced ammunition and they were using advanced tactics so that you didn't necessarily need to see your enemy. But... In the 1860s, here in the United States, not as far as New England, but certainly in Pennsylvania and down to the south and into the Midwest, there was battle after battle where brother looked brother, cousin looked cousin in the eye across the field and used weapons that were primitive in the sense that they caused an inordinate amount of damage to the human body. And so we think of the cannon. We think of the musket ball. We even think of the canister, which was basically a hand grenade that was shot at across the field of battle. And we think of how those wounds led to violent and traumatic injury. But the reality is, is that even then at that time, and certainly now as historians continue to plumb the deep records that were kept by the generals and by the other commanding officers, and by the the medical staff of both the Union and the Confederacy, they've come to realize that over two-thirds 
of the deaths in the Civil War were not caused by the wound. They were caused by an infection that came on either from the wound or came on separate from another injury. So that is to say, musket balls killed a lot of people, but the infection that came in around that wound killed even more people. Being in hot, swampy climates in Virginia and North Carolina and Georgia killed more people than cannonballs did. And there's something, I think, incredibly pertinent about this. It's not necessarily the painful, penetrating wound that kills. Oftentimes, what leads to death is the infection. Churches are hurt by wounds, but churches are killed by infections. Things like embezzlement, things like affairs on the pastoral staff, those hurt churches. Undoubtedly, they do, and we see accounts of this, unfortunately, across the nation and even close to home. But what kills churches? What kills churches that are united by faith and are in fellowship with one another, more often than not, is not the kind of sin that makes the news. It's the infectious sin that is lingering under the surface, either as a response to some great public sin or simply because it's a group of broken Grumbling kills churches. Division kills churches. Or being factious, as Scripture says, breaking into factions. These are the things that do great damage to churches. This is what our text addresses proactively and gratefully. We are addressing this proactively today. This is not in response to something I heard about this week. This is not in response to some great thing that I know is lingering under the surface here at Christ's covenant. But just as this is given by Peter to his audience, this is given to us as an inoculation against what may be coming as we continue to live in proximity and in relationship with one another. It's not in the Proverbs, but I think there's truthfulness in the idea of familiarity breeding contempt. Just as you can struggle within your family, you can struggle within your community, you can struggle within your cohort at work or at school, you can struggle and you can fight and you can have problems within a church. And so Peter is inoculating his people against this. The Holy Spirit, through God's word, is giving his people all that is needed in order to avoid the kind of damage that doesn't look like a gunshot wound or like being, being hit by, by a cannonball. But it's the kind of thing that will grow and go unnoticed and eventually tear a church to the ground. And so the solution that we're given by Peter is to love and serve each other. It's for broken people, broken people who have been redeemed, to serve and to love other broken people, whether they've been redeemed or not. And we do this like Jesus did it, and we do this for Jesus. So our text this morning is talking about how the solution to avoid division, to to avoid infection, sinful infection in the church, is to love and serve each other like Jesus and for Jesus. So look at verse 8 with me. 
Peter writes, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving one another earnestly, or, or, or do so diligently, do so with a, a focus on it. Do so like you're trying to do it. It's not incidental love. It's not the kind of love that you just kind of run across because I read a verse this morning about love, and so I guess i got to try to love. Be focused on love. Just as you have probably three meals planned out today, just as you have certain plans for your work week, loving each other ought to be earnestly done. Why? Love covers a multitude of sins. Church, do you realize that love is greater than mess? I had a, one of the things that, being in the South, you pick up these interesting phrases. I'm sure they exist in the North. They're just not nearly as romantic, I'm afraid to say. And if, if they are, I mean, aside from the word wicked, there's really not a whole lot we have going for us up here. So, but down South, one of the things is the word mess. It's used in all sorts of, of ways. But just this idea of it's used as a noun, it's used as a verb, it's used as an adjective. It's just this idea that there's a problem. There's mess. There is a mess. Things are being messed. There is mess happening. And mess just defines the, the, the ickiness and the problems and the disjointed nature of relationship and all of the variables that come into it. Your schedule this week might be a mess. If Little League sports have started and things are changing at work, and vacations happening somewhere, there might be mess in your week. And as you add people to that, the propensity for there to be problems within the mess between you and somebody you love because they're very close with you, or you and someone that we ought to be loving because they are within the family of God, the propensity for that mess to cause strife becomes significant. But love is the thing that can flavor the relationship so that when the mess happens, when you enter into the mess, that love is going before you, that love is flavoring the interaction, that earnest love is surrounding you and surrounding the situations that you enter into. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that famous passage that you inevitably hear about any and every time you go to a a, a, a wedding that's officiated by a, a pastor in a Christian setting, in talking about all the things that love is, it says that love is not resentful and that love does not take into account a wrong suffered. That means something bad might happen and love says, I will not be resentful. Something uncomfortable might happen. You might be offended and there is nothing in here and given, it's been a while since I've sat down in one sitting and read it cover to cover. I certainly didn't do it this week in anticipation of this message. But there's nothing in here saying that if somebody offends you, you have to hold on to it. The world says that. That is a common sentiment in the world, that if somebody has wronged you, then make sure that in some way, maybe not with your fists, maybe not on social media, but at least in your heart, Make sure you mark and avoid as a toxic person the one who offended you. It doesn't matter if they're in your family. It doesn't matter if they live in your cul-de-sac. It doesn't matter if they're in your church. That is your right to be angry and hold on to that resentment. That sounds ridiculous. And when you say it like that, it is ridiculous. 
But if you hop online and you look at pithy things that are put on social media and you read books about how to have relationships with people, that is a legitimate way that this world is training people to operate. Hang on to your resentment for all the things that our world says that love is, for all the flags that are draped over the, world, the word love in our culture today. It is remarkable that the idea of love cannot overcome offense in our world. But as Christians, as being in Christ, we are called to not be resentful. And as it says again in 1 Corinthians 13, not take into account a wrong suffered. One of my favorite Proverbs, and one that I try to drill into my brain, is Proverbs 19, uh, 11. It says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It is in your glory to overlook an offense. Now, it might be something simple. It might be somebody cutting you off on the highway. And instead of, you know, showing them your IQ, instead instead of, you know, yelling at them from your car at 80 miles an hour as they're going 80 miles an hour, whatever it might be, you're able to just let it go. It is your glory to overlook an offense. If somebody does something that you don't like, they make a snide comment about your cooking. They make a a, a smart comment about the way that your child has said something or done something. They have just done something ignorant, either on purpose or maybe completely inadvertently. It is in your glory to overlook an offense. There is glory in that. There is something good in that. These are things, again, that the world says, no, stand up for yourself. Show, 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 stand your ground. Show them that you heard what they said, and it hurt your feelings, and you need to have it out with them. And if they don't want to hear you, then again, mark them as a toxic person and keep them at arm's length. Now, are there times for this? Certainly. There are offenses that are great. There are sinful offenses that are great, and this is beyond the scope of our text this morning, There's a pattern for dealing with that also. Matthew 18 makes it very clear. If someone sins against you, and it is such that you cannot overlook it, either because it is a gross sin or is it a sin that is dangerous to you or to others, or simply because it's happened enough times that you said, you know what, this is really weighing on my conscience, what do you do? Print a banner at the local Kinko's. I don't know if those exist anymore. And you put it up in your front yard. So and so offended me right? Or you do what's much easier. You get on your phone and you tap it out without using their name because passive-aggressive responses are that much more powerful. You go to that person and you have a conversation with that person, as Jesus says in Matthew 18, and if they repent, if you reconcile, then you have won your brother. And then, of course, it goes through this process. If they don't hear you or they don't listen to you, or they didn't respond well to you in that situation, then take two or three witnesses, which is consistently across God's word the qualification for, for, for guilt or for adjudicating guilt. And then if that doesn't happen, you bring it to the church. Bring it to the elders, and then you go from there. But that doesn't have to happen. If it is a minor offense, someone criticizing your cooking, somebody saying something snide about you or your family, and you don't know if it was done purposefully or not, 
It is his glory to overlook an offense. And this is, again, something that we ought to have in our hearts and minds. Why is that? It's because we can and we will and, and, and other people can and they will get frustrated with us, with you, with each other. One of the hardest things that, 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 that I've had to have in my mind and, and the same uh, ex- things have been expressed by the other men in leadership is, you know, in Andover, and I'm still involved down at NEBC, is, is we have a larger organization, and so lots of things happen. And every once in a while, even in the last couple of months, we, things have happened, and they've, people have sat across my desk, and they've shared the mess, and they've shared the hurt. And a lot of times, it's dealing with this kind of stuff. If you could have overlooked the faults, or if you would have had the conversation. And what that shows me, because that's a healthy church, that's a thriving church, that is a God-honoring church. The scary thing is knowing that things like that will inevitably happen in this environment. Just as if you were cradling your, 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 your newborn infant and you have your toddler and everything more or less is fine, and then you talk to a parent that has four or five 20-somethings, or maybe that they, are, they, they have, you know, adult children that have children of their own, and they can walk you through all the heartache and all the difficulty that came as you get out of the toddler years and into the teenage years and then into the adult years. It doesn't mean that you stop and say, if there's going to be a problem on the horizon, we better just stop now. Let's sell them to the circus. We don't have to worry about it. We know that people will get frustrated with us. We know that we will get frustrated with other people. We know that there will be times when there's a multitude of sins that come into our lives, into, in our homes, and because we're in the people business, into our church. And so we need to be prepared to love one another earnestly. You know, thankfully, Christ's love was greater than, than mess. Because Romans 5 says that God showed his love for us that while we were all sorted out and all in line and in perfect situations, that's when he died for us. God showed his love for us that while we were sinners, he died for us. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a blessed assurance What a wonderful cause for doxological song in knowing that we were loved when we didn't have it all figured out. That's a great expression of love. It is easy to love what is perfect. It is easy to love what is ideal. It is easy to love what is comfortable. All of these things are easy. But show me somebody that is perfect. Show me somebody that is ideal. Show me somebody that as you get into legitimate, authentic, intimate relationship is comfortable. And I will give you an obscene amount of money. But the reality is that can't happen because every one of us is a sinner redeemed by grace. Every one of us has mess that we bring into a situation. So what's a practical way to love one another? Invite someone in. That is a practical way to love earnestly. 
if you want to know what it means to earnestly love without walking through having some sort of you know, sanctified mantra of love, 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 love. What is a practical way to love earnestly? A practical way to love someone earnestly is to invite them in. Love is often tied to intimacy. And we understand that, particularly within the physical context. But certainly, when it comes to relationships outside of the marital relationship, there's countless other ways to live in intimacy with one another. Intimacy of communication. Intimacy of spiritual matters. All of these things are ways to live in a loving way with one another. And we're given an example of what that looks like in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another. There is no more intimate way to invite someone in than to literally invite them into your home. There is no more intimate way of showing somebody love and fostering love with somebody, whether you know them well or you're just getting to know them, than to do normal things together. Sitting around a table, sitting around a family room, sitting around a fire pit, sharing food, the same kind of things that Jesus did when he walked on this earth as he was building relationships and fostering intimacy and developing relationship with his disciples and with countless others is the exact same thing that we can do today. It is a perfect one-to-one correlation of building relationship with us, with our families, with our church, and with our community in the way that Jesus did it. We don't have to be an expert in hermeneutics. We don't have to know first century you know, cultural mores. We don't have to get really complicated in figuring out how Jesus loved people. We need to put something in the, in the oven and have one someone sit down and ask them if they want water, seltzer, or tea. And that's it. It's simple. And you do that, and you're normal, as normal as you can be, and you're nice, and you're pleasant, and that is a wonderful way to invite someone in and love someone. That's what hospitality is. That's what hospitality is. Make them comfortable. Again, try to be as normal as you can be. That's, I know that's harder for some of us than it is for others. Maybe be better than normal. How about that? Better than normal ministries. I like that. All right. So hospitality, and not just hospitality, hospitality without grumbling. Grumbling is a sin that we don't talk about enough, but grumbling is one of the sins that kept Israel wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Grumbling is one of the sins that caused the greatest division in the early church. Again, these are people that are being written to within 30 and 40 years of Christ's ascension, and they're grumbling to the point it's causing fractures within the body of Christ. Grumbling is bad. Capital offenses, murder, and kidnapping, and all of those things, terrible. We're not giving them a pass. But when was the last time that we went on a rant against grumbling? It's hard to do because then you're kind of getting into grumbling territory yourself. What is grumbling? Grumbling is having that attitude of, I'm going to do this, but I don't want to do it. I'm going to love this person only because I have to love this person. Grumbling is something, again, we use that example about doing things for the Lord. It's, it's doing it only because we have to do it, not having a heart posture that wants to do it. Now, does that mean 
that if you realize, oh my goodness, I invited so-and-so over for lunch today, and my kids made a mess, and I have to clean it up, that at that point, you have to say, you know what? I kind of just grumbled, so no hospitality. No, that's an opportunity for you to work through the multiple problems that you have and to be sanctified in working through the mess. And I guarantee you that people are going to overlook the things that you think are the biggest flaws in your home. I guarantee you that people are going to overlook the things that are the biggest flaws in what you perceive in your cooking and you perceive to be the cleanliness of your yard in the behavior of your children. We are rightfully having a, in, a, in a state where we have a greater radar and an awareness of, of problems that are in our home. Other people don't have that same sort of thing. You know, it's interesting that in, in um, 1 Timothy chapter 5, when it talks about church leadership, that hospitality is one of the requirements. That if you are not hospitable, you cannot be a leader in Christ's church. This is one of the qualifications. A seminary education doesn't matter as much as being hospitable. Being eloquent isn't as important as being hospitable. All of these other things that we sometimes, you know, having it look like you have it all together is not as important. That's certainly not why you all brought me here. That's not as important as being hospitable. It's a requirement for serving the church. And then notice, this is interesting, that one of the, the qualification lists that we don't often talk about is the qualifications for being served by the church, particularly widows, those who have, who have, who have, have lost their spouse. Their being hospitable is actually a qualification for them receiving consistent and ongoing help from the church. That's what Timothy, I think that was actually in our text this morning if you were in the machine reading plan. But that's one of the qualifications for serving the church and being served by the church is being hospitable. So if, it's a resp- if it is an obligation for those who serve the church and it's an obligation for those who are being served by the church, I think that being hospitable and doing it with the right heart and the right attitude is something that ought to permeate every aspect of the church. If this is your first week, if you were a founding member, all of you have that benefit. Everybody has the responsibility of working in their lives to being more hospitable. And true hospitality, mind you, doesn't operate with reciprocity in mind. Do not keep score. I have cooked this many you know, chickens, and I've only eaten this many chickens. I'm not going to invite people over until we're at a, at a better level. That's not the way that hospitality works. Hospitality, like true love, like so many other things, is not self-serving. It's done simply for the joy of serving others and, as the text says, as honoring God. True hospitality doesn't only operate without reciprocity in mind, but true hospitality also operates with salvation in mind. Now, this isn't to say that you invite people over to trap them with a delicious three-course meal and a big fancy vertical trifle, and then you say, but before you dive into this chocolate pudding whipped cream situation, let me tell you about Jesus. It's not a bait and switch. And it isn't even only for those who are unsaved. But there's salvation in mind in the sense that our salvation doesn't only include going from darkness to light, going from not knowing Christ to knowing Christ. It is also our sanctification, growing in faith, 
It doesn't mean that as you sit down to the table, you give everyone a handout and say, well, let's all talk about the sermon today. That would be uncomfortable. It might be the right thing to do, but it would be uncomfortable. But true hospitality operates with asking legitimate questions. Can things be surface level? Absolutely. Can things be fun and lighthearted? Absolutely. But is there a a deeper component to your hospitality? That's what our salvation is. It's not just saying the sinner's prayer. It's our justification. It's also our sanctification. It's this growing more like Christ. So even the idea of engaging in hospitality and receiving hospitality is part of our salvation. We are growing in greater conformity to the image of Jesus Christ as we engage in and as we receive hospitality, as we love others and as we are loved by others. So we have salvation in mind. It's interesting, in Proverbs chapter 9, when talking of wisdom, it says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her cattle, and she has mixed her wine. She has prepared her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks a heart of wisdom, she says, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your simplicity and live, and step into the way of understanding. The invitation into knowing Christ more, the invitation of Christ-shaped wisdom, of cruciform wisdom, is actually given as a picture of hospitality. It's inviting people in so that they can be nourished and they can grow. This supper that we will celebrate here momentarily is an invitation into the the hospitable situation that Christ, as the true host, has set up for us. Hospitality is an invitation to growth. Hospitality is a cruciform, a cross-shaped invitation into growth. We've invited in by Christ. The supper is a perfect example of that. The other means of grace in baptism, in the word given to us, in the word preached and the word heard, are great pictures of the hospitality of Christ. And he's given us his spirit, his presence. And an aspect of the spirit's presence in the church, in my life, in your life, without exception, every one of you, from the oldest to the youngest, is service. It is serving. Look at verse 10. As each has received gift. Now, I don't know if you have a little, like an asterisk, or a little cross, or a footnote that gives the exception to this, but if you do, it shouldn't be there. As each has received a gift. That means every one of you. If you are in Christ, you have been given by the Holy Spirit the capacity, the supernatural, spirit-endowed capacity to serve. You might know what that is. You might still be figuring that out, but that is in you. If the Spirit is in you, you have this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. This is a a phrase that, for whatever reason, I honestly, it didn't pop out to me until I was looking through Scripture uh, here before I came up to preach. But isn't this remarkable? God has a varied grace. He only has one grace, but it is multifaceted, like a, a, a giant diamond that has been cut with many, many faces, 
held up to the light, it refracts the beauty of God's light in countless ways, in a way that's mesmerizing, in a way that's dazzling. The same is true of the different ways that all of us, varied members with different skill sets, with different experiences, with different ages and different, different lives, manifest and demonstrate the wonderful gifts given to God. It is one grace, but it is varied like a multifaceted, beautiful gem. So that means if your gift doesn't look like their gift, if his gift doesn't look like her gift, that there's nothing wrong with it. And notice the two categories that Peter gives. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, I don't think this is a dichotomy that, for example, I don't have to pick something up today because I spent like half an hour talking. That's not what's being said here. It's that God has given certain people different gifts, and each one is to be lived out in the life of the community, in, hosp in hospitality, in earnestly showing love, and to be done for the purpose that God has given it. So would it be right to say, I have been given the gift to lead, but I can't do that because leadership is one of those things that it's often abused, and so I'm going to actually kind of hide my light under a bushel, and I'm only going to go and move shelves out from behind the, over the wall and sweep the dust out. Then I'll actually be serving because I'll look like a servant. Or I am feel very, very called to be organizational and be behind the scenes, and I know that I'm good at this, and I know that I can take care of these things, but nobody sees me doing that, so I don't think that my light is shining enough, so I'm going to get up and play the tambourine. We don't have any openings for tambourine players, correct? <laughs> I don't think anyone's good at tambourine, but that's my, my personal opinion. That's not, that's not how the way we should look at it. We, false humility is not humility. Not living in and demonstrating the gift that you've been given is not living in the gift that you've been given. One who speaks should speak. The one who serves can serve. And both are good. There is nothing wrong with having a more prominent role from like earthly organizational standards. And there's nothing wrong with having a more behind-the-scenes the role from earthly organizational standards. Those both are good. Those both are necessary. Those both are part of the way that God has given his church, the opportunity to thrive. Remembering those words from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that it is neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. I think every one of us, if, we, if we've been believers for a long enough time, we can look back in our life through the, through the years, through the decades of people who were meek and humble and they were behind the scenes and they had a profound impact on our life, that they didn't need to preach a sermon to give us the kind of information and wisdom and insight that we needed. There's countless examples of that. Similarly, there's countless examples of somebody who stood up and said something in a way that had a significant impact on your life. But the important thing to remember is, it wasn't the janitor that was, that was sweeping quietly and then said something profound to you nor was it the pastor over the, 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 the congregation of thousands that said something that impacted you that was actually having a true 
impact on your heart. It was, is, and always will be God's spirit. We are vessels. We are channels. We are vehicles for, for communicating the grace that is lavishly and luxuriously given out by a holy God. So whatever your gift is, and it might be for a time, we are in an amazing situation, church, at this fledgling work of Christ's covenant where we are going to be called to do so many things. We're going to be called to be incredibly flexible. We do not have the, the, the organization, nor do we have the setting where people can be in their little silos and doing their jobs. You are going to be called to be a pinch hitter. You're going to be called to be a relief pitcher in the same game. You're going to be called to be going left and called to be going right, maybe within a span of a few minutes. That is the wonderful, exciting nature of planting churches and new churches. It's kind of like being newly married. It's kind of like having the first child where everything's different and you're called to be on your toes all the time. But whatever you're called to do, knowing that it might be up front, it might be behind the scenes, maybe it is for a time, maybe that is your God-given lot in life. This is where you're supposed to be. It all comes from God. It's all for God. And so we ask ourselves, how are you serving? How are you serving? It's a great question. How am I serving? What am I doing? Is it, and hear these words well, just through prayer? Now, that is the most ironic, you know, air quotes that I could have made. Because there are times when your life is incredibly hectic. It may be that you are literally confined to a bed or a room or a very small person that just was born or that you have a difficult situation in your life where your call to serve the church is not to get up and move chairs. Your situation is not to be the one that bakes the big feast. It is not to be the one that sets something up or leads some sort of initiative, but it is to pray. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That is your service. But if you're fully capable, if you have empty, if, if, if you have bushels full of something that could be given, then that is the Lord leading saying, perhaps I should bring my full bushels and give that fruit to those who are around me. If I have been given something then that I feel like I need to talk to my elders and say, I really want to serve in this capacity, then that is how you ought to serve. That is God's inclination. That is the Spirit pushing you to serve in that way. So again, there is no gradation in the quality of service. What you are called to do is what you are called to do. And what you are called to do is what you ought to do for each other and for God. Because remember, that is who ultimately you serve. You do not serve me. You do not serve the other elders. You do not serve those in the chair rows next to you. First and foremost, we serve God. And in doing so, we serve the body of Christ. And that's how this text ends. It says in verse 11, in order that we, we, we serve by the strength that God supplies, in verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, this is an incredibly practical, practical text. It's incredibly practical. It gives us things that we ought to do. It gives us uh, postures of our heart and postures of our body. 
It gives us how we ought to be living today and how we ought to aim to live tomorrow in incredibly practical ways. But make no mistake about it. At the end of the day, what needs to be in our hearts and minds is that this all ought to be done in a Godward trajectory. We are looking up, we are looking forward, we are looking squarely on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is our focus. Being God-honoring is our greatest intention as we serve. So even in the most practical texts, even in the most important ways that we ought to serve, we have God at the center. So, Luke chapter 10 says this, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is a great example of someone who was serving, but they didn't take time to stop and think about who they ought to be serving and how they ought to be serving. Martha was working hard, but there was something about her attitude that wasn't perfect. Mary was not working because she was devoted in that time, in that situation, to Jesus in a very particular way. Now, this doesn't mean that we ought to be split down the middle, a group of Marthas, a group of Marys. We may, though, have that tendency to be busy without remembering who we are serving. And this is important as we contemplate that our service is ultimately to God. If we're working our fingers to the bone, but it's for others or for itself, ourselves, it might not be for God. We serve others, yes, but ultimately we serve God. And why do we do that? Why do we serve the one who has everything he needs? Because he is God. Because as this text says, glory and dominion, and we, our bodies, our gifts, everything that we have, belong to him. And our last thing that I'll, I'll, I'll mention on this, this, this text right here, with people, we always have a yeah, but. With people, there's always a, yeah, you know, they could probably do that for themselves. They do okay financially. They probably don't need that. You know, they, they have free time. You know, they, they probably don't need me to help. You know, they have skills. They have neighbors. They have family. I probably don't need to do that. The church had a lot of people that have volunteered to do this, that, and the other. I probably don't need to. On a human, earthly level, there's always a, yeah, but sentiment that we can, if we try hard enough, insert into it. But when we remember our service is first and foremost to God, who has glory, who has dominion, that all those things belong to him, then we never have a yeah, but. We never have an excuse for not doing something. Again, and I say this with, with, with all sincerity, even if it is just praying. There's never a time where you are just praying. Praying, as we talked about in the catechism, is, is whether it be on bent knee or whether it be cried out as we are driving, is bringing the requests of ourselves and our families and our church and our community 
before a holy and just God. There is never a just prayer. It is always a prayer that is heard and always a prayer that is received by God. So what does this passage teach? We love each other. We are hospitable to each other. We serve each other. And we do this for each other, but we do this first and foremost for the glory of God. Now, remember that the context of this, though, of 1 Peter, is suffering. That's the context of this passage. And so when I talked about this text being an inoculation for us, for a time comes when we aren't predisposed to loving one another because things are hard, remember that we've been warned and we've been given a, 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 all we need in the text, through the Spirit, in a context where people were actively being persecuted. That is when they were called to love one another. It is nice to love one another when everyone's nice, when everything is nice, but that is not the situation that Peter was writing to. And that's not the situation that we're always going to have. We must, church, be a church that rejoices in loving one another today, showing hospitality to one another today, serving one another today. We must be a church that does it, not to do lip service, not to appear like we're doing the right thing, but do so because of God, and we do so for God. So remember that you will have hurt in your life, maybe from those here, from those that will be here from our community. So prepare your heart to love in that hurt, to serve in that hurt. Because remember that we have first been loved by and we've been saved by the one who died. Wasn't just hurt by us, but died for us. And so with that in mind, with that in our hearts, we'll come to the Lord's table this morning. Once again, this is an opportunity for us to engage, as we talked about earlier, engaging our bodies, engaging our hands, engaging our taste and our sight and our scent in worship knowing that God has given this to us as people who are tangible, as people who have these real needs. Now, in 1 Corinthians, this was actually given as an example, and we'll continue this as we receive the elements, but um, prior to the instructions that we often read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 regarding the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul is showing how this meal itself became an opportunity where people were not loving each other. And so, this moment is a communion first and foremost between us and God, but it's also a communion with one another. And so my encouragement to you today, certainly pray what is on your heart. Pray what the Lord has brought to mind as, as, as you receive the elements, as you go up to get them, as you go back to your seat, as you sit and wait to take the elements. But my encouragement to you is think about how we are doing this together. We are doing this with one another. Consider ways that the Lord has laid on your heart how you can serve each other, serve our church. We can love, be hospitable, and we can be with one another. So I'll ask John to come up and lead us in a, in a song, and Joe and, and David will come and administer the elements, and I'll ask you to come and receive the juice or the wine and the cracker, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.